Good morning, everybody. It's just so good to be with you today. Normally, I'm upstairs with the kids, but I had an incredible opportunity to be able to help be part of this series on Exodus called Getting Out, to be able to be in a specific, incredible chapter, Exodus chapter 3, where we spend the majority of our time on this morning. It also leads into chapter 4. But what an incredible story the story of Moses is, and I'm just so excited to be here to be able to deliver a message to you. Um, And we're going to be able to pick things right off from where we left off last week. So if you weren't here, here's a brief little recap as well as an extension into the story of Moses and his spiritual journey. So if you have Bibles, we're going to be looking through this today. Again, I have my NIV with me. If you have a Bible app, or for those of you online, you can use the Bible service there uh, through our online uh, space. And it'd be really great to have you follow along as best you can. I'm going to be hopping around a few times as well. So Moses, he is someone who had just recently fled Egypt. And why would you flee? Well, Moses had partaken something horrific. He had committed a murder among the Egyptians. And so he was driven out of this entire area, and he fled and resettled to a new land called Midian. And on this uh, great fleeing, he is on a spiritual journey. Um, I would say a difficult one, right? And you're being exiled in this moment here. And he's traveling to a new culture, a new setting with all kinds of different people, with different values and beliefs. And I mean, he already struggled with that before he fled, Um, but I don't know about you, I've had an incredible opportunity in my young life to be able to travel to different countries. Um, I've been to a few, um, Canada, Haiti, and China, those are three very different places, but each one has the same thing happen to you, right? You struggle linguistically, culturally, racially, all the things that come with being in a whole new setting and culture. And Moses is is struggling with that here while he's fleeing, but while he's fleeing, he is in his wilderness. He is alone. He is, even when I, for example, uh, for the longest extension of my time when traveling, I spent two months in Wuhan, China. And while I was there, I was so easily recognized, but I was never truly seen. And Moses is the same way here. And I, I just want you to think about what that was like maybe for him versus us. And I know for me, it was being a visitor. When those two months were done, I left. I got to go back home. I got to be back in my culture with my food, with my family, with everything that made me, me. I got to go back to. But Moses in exile, he's not going back. This is a one-way ticket. And he's there, and he's completely resettling himself. He ended up getting married, um, found a wife, and ended up having a son named Gershom, which interestingly translates to, I have been an alien, a sojourner, residing in a foreign land. That exact description is in Exodus chapter 2, verse 22. But in exile, he ran as far away as he could. I mean, as he was able to, and he remained in solitary, non-public existence for many years. And even among crowds, I mean, he is, his own persona for himself is an outcast. I do not belong. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I belong now after what's happened. Who am I now because of what's of what I've done, or even even prior to his exiling, when he was in Egypt, he struggled with, am I an Israelite or am I an Egyptian? Who am I? I am seen different, I'm known differently, but I am not affirmed in who I am and where I am going. And so he's lost in confusion, 
like most people are on their life journey. But for him, he was looking for more than just, he was looking for acceptance. And even with what he just did, forgiveness. And that kind of being lost um, in your own way out in the wilderness must be really devastating. I mean, imagine the desolation and the assault that has on your soul, being lost and entrapped in that, feeling cast away, adrift, broken, and unidentifiable. I recently picked up a really excellent spiritual formation book that just recently came out called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. I highly recommend this book. And it's primarily about identifying and resisting the three enemies, the three lies that are at battle with us um, and that sabotage our peace. The first is the flesh, uh, the second is the world, and the third is the devil, right? Those three things. And so (laughs) with that, Moses, in his own way, he's feeling like there's a war on his soul each and every day. There's, There's tension of always living counter to those who I'm with. John Mark also speaks to um, a quote from Walter Brugman, who defined exile as this, the experience of knowing one is alien, and perhaps in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. Moses knows, feels, and struggles with who he is, and all of that, he is constantly living in this makeshift torment of himself. And Moses, even with his relationship with Zipporah, his new wife, he probably confided in her in a lot of things, but even she couldn't give him what he desperately needs, which is that affirmation and forgiveness. And so you see in Exodus 2 verse 19 that even Zipporah, when after Moses saved them, her and her sisters um, with the uh, sheep, she introduced Moses to her father as an Egyptian. Moses didn't correct her, of course. I mean, why, why would he? I mean, he's lived his whole life uh, being just whatever. <laughs> At this point, you can really say, I'm a Midianite, I guess. I don't know if that's what they call themselves there. But Moses is not, even in his marriage, affirmed with who he is. And he's unclear, and he's always adapting himself. And so Moses, Moses, who's at war with his soul, with who he is and his purpose, but in the wilderness, he is declaring his greatest pain. And so here lies the tension. Have you ever been unwilling to face your pain? Unwilling. Pain unaddressed continues to hurt, even to the touch, right? No matter how far you've buried it, no matter where it is underneath your skin, we ignore, we self-medicate, we drown out, we, we find ways to cope, but not address or face it, trying to forget about what's happened. And we don't often, like Moses, get to shift in reverse. We don't, go, we don't get to go back, back and backwards in time as to what we did and undo it. Moses can't get himself out of this dark ditch. He did it and it destroyed his life, his career, and his status. Whether it was premeditated or deliberate, reactive, accidental, it doesn't change what happened. For Moses, he fled from it. He's running from it. And so when we suppress our sins instead of confess them, our soul really becomes quite ill. It corrodes itself and develops a false self within us. We end up living, acting, and believing lies about ourselves that aren't true. And that go completely counter to the real truth of who we are, especially in Christ, especially in God's eyes. And we don't get to live 
at peace with who we are and what's really going on inside. Pride and shame, right, tend to be really great barriers to prevent us from being able to have that experience of recognizing who we really are and how to address it. And so there's no healing and peace that's on the other side if we continue to live behind those walls. And maybe, you know, Moses was just dealing with unwillingness. I mean, maybe it was the fear of judgment. Maybe it was upsetting others. Any peace, peacemakers in the room, people, people pleasers? Stubbornness, stubborn. Stubbornness to change. Perhaps it's actually facing the trauma again completely bringing it up again, looking at it, taking it on from maybe even a third-person perspective now and addressing it, processing it, and accepting, actually feeling through what's happened. I know as a guy, that's something I don't like to do as often. Um, It's just, I can't continue to live in avoidance or rejection, right, of what is emotion. It's an emotional process. We're meant to motion through it. And it's all part of plowing the soil in our soul. Like we are meant to be able to unearth the things that, are, that have been going on in our life. And so the pathway to healing can feel like a long road, but it's made shorter when we allow God to really unroot us and penetrate deep, be able to sow and to mend us in our brokenness. Here's a quote from Alan Jones from Soul Making. He writes, the opportunity for conversion is brief. And our lives are littered with missed opportunities. We miss the moments for conversion quite often. As adults on our own spiritual journey, we have a responsibility to name and to claim these ineffectual and destructive patterns in our life. We, we, we must. One step toward the repattering of our soul with God is that he's inviting us to these points. And sometimes, more often than not, it's when we're at our lowest point, right, that we're open to the greatest change And I think for Moses, this was his lowest point. Um, And it didn't just happen in an instant. It happened through many years and many months, being lost and finding not only just himself, midlife crisis stuff, but finding God, finding God who can help him through it. And so Moses discovered what we all must discover, that in solitude, that is the place of our own conversion, through peace and solitude, through silence and solitude. We can stop being in our own press, right? The cameras are no longer off. The, 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 the kind of paparazzi that we put on ourselves, the, those fears and those things that constantly drive us more inward rather than being open. And so we also, through those times, discover that maybe we aren't so good as we once thought, or maybe also we discover we're more than what we once thought. We have to be able to get in a space where we can be settled, Be in solitude and be in silence. And when we're in solitude, our illusions fall away. And we see, sometimes with disturbing clarity, just our competitiveness, our jealousies, our rages, our manipulations, the things that we're even able to not only deal with ourselves, but how we project it onto others. Um, Yeah, I love my wife and her ability to be vulnerable with me and be able to... uh, confide in one another, but sometimes there are days where we get the brunt ends of each other's false selves. I'll come home from work, and maybe it was a long, stressful day, or there was something that happened that just, I don't know, I I was dealing with it in my own arena. But often those people who are in our closest circles, right, of life, they tend to get all of what we bring back. And so I put her in my arena as soon as I got home, and I might have been a bit snippy, maybe a little... Think another word, tone deaf. What other words were used? Um, 
uh, hangry. Yeah, that was part of it. But, you know, I, I spent all this time in this, and we just had to be in silence for a bit. And if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And we came together, and, you know, like a husband and wife, I would hope we did come together, and we made peace through it. But it was like, man, what is going on, right? And there was something going on with our souls, and I was unfortunately putting and projecting my false self onto her, and I brought her into it. There's a quote by John English from Spiritual Pilgrims. He writes, those things we cannot accept in ourselves, we project upon others. If I do not admit my shadow side, I will unconsciously find another who will carry my shadow for me. So it could be good, it could be bad. It could be damaging, or it can be healing. Once this projection is made, then I need not be upset with myself. My problems are now outside, and I can fight them there rather than within the real arena, which is myself. Resisting ourselves is the battle with God's redemptive work in us. And holding on to our self-protective patterns is one that's going to lead to just unhealthy manifestations and an unwillingness to surrender it to God for the journey that is ahead, right? Will you get out of your own way so that you will let God spiritually transform and do a good work in you for the sake of others, Let's see how this exact thing takes place for Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So again, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to that. We're going to be paraphrasing here just for the first verse, but then we'll get right into it in verse 2. So one day, Moses was carrying out a routine task and tending the flocks of Jethro. He ventured out a little further than usual and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Here is the moment Moses' life trajectory would change forever. Now, starting at verse 2 of Exodus 3, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It was almost God had been waiting for this moment, for Moses to finally be vulnerable, to be ready, to be settled enough, to be able to have an opportunity to where he can be fully present with him all alone. Oftentimes, our pace in life isn't what leadership demands. I mean, we, we can't maintain the pace of life that we tend to have to be able to notice or pay attention to when God calls on us, right? We can't. You know, this is also a moment in Scripture where a lot of times God is directly implied or strongly um, expressed, but there's no direct action that can be directly attributed to God in Exodus until this moment. This is where God finally speaks into his life and to him. And when he knew he was ready, he was able to take a more direct approach with Moses. But looking at Moses, though, he is attentive. He's listening. He's doing well so far. He's, you know, when called out, he says, here I am. When asked to take off his slippers and sandals, he said, okay, and, and he does. Um, God's overwhelming presence must have just been paralyzing. I mean, like a deer in headlights, there he is, and being God's light beaming on him, illuminated in flame, his light on us, and Moses' shadow self 
fully exposed. He sees all of Moses, his past, present, even his future, and positions him to be very and fully vulnerable. And now after Moses presents himself fully to God, the coolest thing happens. The Lord gives him affirmation. He gives him that these, I am the God of your father and of his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Israelites. And not, again, he is the God, not an Egyptian gods, not polytheism, but monotheism, the God, the one true God. And so he gives them affirmation of identity and that they, his ancestors are that of the same communal people that follow him. There it is. There's an answer to prayer. Now imagine missing this moment for Moses, being so distracted in life, right? Talking about the pace we keep is not what leadership requires. So how often are you paying attention? How often? Do I have enough give in my schedule to be able to turn aside from whatever I'm doing, to see God in the moment? Do I have enough in my schedule? Do I have enough give? Do I have enough margin in my life? Do I have enough time mechanisms, healthy mechanisms, right, that allow you to be able to be present, not just with God, but even with other people who may be opportunities of conversion? And so don't miss these moments when God's trying to communicate with you. And it sounds really rather impressive here where God explains and describes himself as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, until you realize these three men were greatly flawed, greatly flawed men. I mean, they're, they're not perfect, right? They're just, or, go back in Genesis and read their drama-filled stories and family dramas. They were not perfect, but God chose to use them anyway. They were liars, tricksters, schemers, and dreamers. Nevertheless, though, by his grace, God chose to enter into a personal relationship with them, a covenant one, mind you. And it's unbreakable, and, and it has eternal blessings involved. And for God, he is not ashamed to be called their God. As described in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, it reads, Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, a promised land. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God still associates, even today, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Though dead, he still has relationship with them. There's this incredible verse where Jesus proves to the Sadducees the resurrection. It's found in Matthew chapter 22, verse 31 to 32. Jesus says to them, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. To this very day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are enjoying fellowship with God in heaven. So God's relationship with us is personal, as you just see right there, but it's also saving. What's the purpose of God going to Moses? To save the Israelites. And so this is the commission. He's saving us from whatever is enslaving us and captivating us from him. What are those things that are enslaving and captivating you? To be freed and delivered to a better land, one that's promised gushing and flowing with milk and honey. Know that may or may not be God's favorite snack, but it is what I hear often in scripture described as land that is flourishing, that is just overabundant and green pastures with water and with everything you need, and even more than you need, it's overabundant. 
Why also the form of the burning bush? This has always caused um, a lot of debate among scholars and things, but there is a consensus of understanding symbolically, and that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23 through 24, which says, Be careful not to forget the covenant the Lord your God has made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Fire is the image of passion, glory, and a fury of wrathful judgment. However, this fire, though engulfing, was not consuming. Both mercy and love and judgment were given here with the end result producing new life through cleansing. Perhaps as we continue reading through scriptures and as you see in the weeks ahead in this series, you'll be able to make some more connections to this. Holy ground is also the first time the Bible uses the word holy, interestingly enough, in this moment. At the burning bush, God revealed his holiness in a way that had never been revealed before. And Moses, he was so impressed by this, later he wrote famously in his victory hymn in Exodus 15 about it. He gives the divine attributes of holiness here. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, he says, "'Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds?' doing wonders. Jesus is also our holiness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. We also see that the Holy Spirit on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, described as tongues of fire, who in spirit become, became the advocate of Christ Jesus to be at work and presence within us, to be as God mobilizes his church. But God gives Moses yet another instruction here, and it's also echoed and shared, quoted by Stephen in the book of Acts, and he is declaring this to the Sanhedrin in his big speech before his life was sadly taken. But we see here in Acts chapter 7, verse 34, it reads, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people, he's quoting God here, I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. God's relationship with his people is just so close. His love for them is so intense that he specifically identifies the children of Israel as my people. In any case, there's any doubt whether to God uh, knows or doesn't know what's happening to them. He himself repeats this in verse 9. See, when God's people suffer, he suffers. They sometimes wonder if God really cares, right? And maybe you're there. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you've suffered before. And you're questioning, does God even understand what I'm going through? Does he care? But the story of Israel and Egypt is just one, one example of so many where God is making the dramatic case that he knows exactly what his people are going through. He sees, hears, and feels our suffering, especially through his son who came and died for us. Now in Acts chapter 7, verse 34, it continues, he quotes God in this moment, Stephen, now come Moses, I will send you back to Egypt. Can you imagine Moses in this moment? Send me back? Send me back? What is this, Lion King? Like where you're gone, you have to be gone forever and never return. And that's what he believes about himself. I'm not able to fit back there. That's my old life. I'm way out here living this new life. And yet you, God, come to me now and say, I have to go back? I just did a 180. Won't we do another? <laughs> no. 
what? Send me back to Egypt? And then he goes into, God, yeah, I don't know if you know what went down, but they, basically, I'm not the right guy. He says it right there in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I? That I should go back to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. <laughs> basically, you know, God, even though Moses believes he's the wrong guy, God says, no, you're the right guy. You're qualified. You're my guy. Um, he's having Moses face in this moment everything that he's ran away from. God's positioning Moses to face everything. People, circumstances, confusion, self, soul, oh, all the things in this moment of just looking in the direction of Egypt. Now, in Exodus 3, verse 12, he says, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses continues playing into his fear, though, and uncertainty. And while God continues to give him promising assurances that he is with him, it's like Moses is in complete disbelief. I mean, he's just now discovering who it is that's communicating to him. All of a sudden, he wants to send him back, and then he says, he'll be with me? What does that even mean? So for the first time, Moses is really facing his past self. And however, this time, the great I am is going to be with him. It's going to be okay, Moses. In Exodus 4, it continues. And God is giving Moses incredible instruction and really saying, I'm equipping you with an incredible, miraculous arsenal. Here's a staff that turns into a serpent. Put your hand into your cloak pocket. It comes out leprous. Creepy. Uh, there's a third where... You can have the water from the Nile turn to blood, like all of this uh, whoa stuff, and yet he's probably still thinking in his head about the the relational dynamics and all the things like, wait, you want me to do what? And with this and that, this is a lot to ask of Moses in this moment, probably. But God continues to give him assurance that He's there for them. But even still, Moses gives him excuse after excuse. A personal battle of trust and belief is happening right now in his soul. In Exodus 4, 10 through 17, it reads, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, OMG, I am not eloquent, either in the past or ever since you have spoken your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Uh, my tongue doesn't work properly. Uh, then the Lord said to him, uh, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, deaf, seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, OMG, please send someone else. The anger of the Lord in this moment was kindled. And I love the, the, the verbiage there because it shows his restraint. God has restraint here, but he's angry. And okay, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to, to meet you. And when he sees you, he shall be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him to put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and his mouth. Teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. <laughs> he goes on and on. He shall be your mouth and you shall be God to him. And take in your hand this staff, which you will do all the signs. God was calling Moses to come out of hiding, to be his full self, even his past self, and everything God would call him to be, to just be the leader that I need you to be. Just be yourself, Moses, here and now in front of me. I'm asking you to step up and, and to just allow me to transform you in your life. 
But you see, God's transformation in us is never for ourselves alone. Moses is kind of missing the, the point here. It's for others. Moses, I'm sending you to save people. I'm going to use you to do miraculous things, but it's not just for you. It's for so many people. It's for others. God is spiritually forming us away from project self. He's forming us away from radical individualism and instead shifting us to selflessness and living each day more like Christ. Even when Moses doesn't believe he can do this, God does, for he is with him. And you can see Moses continuing to cower away and give in to his fears over God's invitation to lead, even to the point of making Aaron the spokesperson. So did you notice God made no mention of Moses' past throughout this whole thing? It might have shown up in the background check, but I don't see it on the application. Moses, you're qualified in God's eyes. I know you don't see your life through heaven's eyes right now, but understand that I'm not holding what you did against you. You are. This is the redemptive story arc that Moses is going through, that he's recognizing here that God is choosing to use broken people because he always does. We have this false assumption that you have to be perfect to do these great things. God's saying no. The paradox of salvation is that God uses sinful people like us each and every day to carry out saving purposes. That's what everyone here is equipped to do. And that's what he wants of us. So here's the big idea. Once we know who we are and who God is, we can continue to live for God's purpose, for God saves who he sends. We've seen how God continues to carry out incredible work, even through ordinary people that we wouldn't suspect are big character roles, like his mother, saving him from Pharaoh, from Pharaoh's daughter finding him in the basket, to his sisters having him weaned from his mother, and all of that. Everyone has a huge part to play in this grand story. God saves who he sends constantly. And when God's call to the commission of Moses not only included his salvation, it included his vocation, God continues to save who he sends. Moses asked God, who am I and who are you? These are two of the most fundamental questions a person can ask, and you can find them both in verse 11 and 13. These questions are all about knowing who we are and who God is so that we can begin to live for his purpose. You see, for me, in my calling, there was a moment in my life where I thought my plan, I graduated from Bible college, I went to Ozark, and my plan was to go to Japan to Mustard Seed Global Fellowship, and I was just going to make that my mission field. And it's not that the vocation was wrong, it's, it's, it's good, but it's very ambitious. You have less than 0.1% of the people that are Christian, there's a ton of church needs there. I just felt called for me to go. I felt, I, I was driven, everything I was doing was compelled to go there. And then after I graduated, things fell through. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what to do from that point. I kind of just got angry. All of my like stuff that I dealt with in college was like bubbling back up to the surface. I, I, I had to find God in my own time of wilderness. I would often, because I had to stay with my parents a little longer, right? Go in the woods in the backyard and I'd just get alone and talk out loud. And I would lay down in the grass bed in the meadow and 
Um, I'm originally from Illinois, so, you know, cornfields too, but those hurt your back. But I was just constantly in need of affirmation of, God, where it is you want me to go? I mean, I, I feel like I know who I am. I'm still a young adult figuring my life out. I need to spend more time with you and what you want for me. And that big shift was huge. It took me a while to get there. I often went through incredible insecurities um, about myself to the point that even continued in my years here. It was just all part of the journey of spiritual formation. And when I finally got the invite for a job opportunity, it was from Restoration House Ministries up here in Manchester. And I was like, huh? They do church planning all across New England. And I was familiar with them, but I didn't think God wanted me here in the States. I was supposed to be a missionary, go overseas, do all that other hard stuff. I didn't consider my neighbors a mission field. And that was like a big, like, huh, you know, God helped me wake up to the reality that wherever he has me and the people that I'm with, that's, that's the mission field. And so I really went through a process for myself and, and with God just... I said, yes. So I packed my car. I loaded everything up. I, I drove on my birthday, uh, March 1st, perfect time to travel to New Hampshire. More snow than I can ever imagine. And I was by myself and that dingy car could not, it had bad treads. It was awful, but I made it. I made it safely. I, I may have lived in my car for, for some odd, odd months, but RHM housed me for a bit too. But my life was just, I don't know, it, it was open. It was vulnerable. And I allowed God to form me when I knew that it wasn't about me anymore. And he did. Gosh, I think it's only been seven years. It feels so much longer than that. And I've done a lot of incredible opportunities of ministry here. I've, I've made so many friends. I've helped people take next steps to Jesus on their faith journey. I even met my wife, who's a New Hampshire native. That's cool. Um, I have a daughter now, just this past summer. She's three and a half months old and adorable. My life would be a totally different story if I didn't say yes to just the invite that God gave me to lead in a place that I didn't want to go. Patriots beat up my St. Louis Rams for years. I, I only knew lobster was up here and it was past New York. It was too far. That's all I knew. And now that I've lived here, I'm like totally assimilated. It's my, I love it here. I love the people. And it's just, it's been an incredible story when I look back on it. And it's still growing. It's still continuing. And my formation's not complete. It never is until I'm with him. And even then, we'll see what awaits in heaven. But this is a relationship. It's a journey. And he invites us to it. And just remember this. God, no matter where you are on your life journey right now, he is pursuing you. He pursues all of us. He reaches down to his children because he cares and says, you're my people. He gave us his only son so that we can be free from the bondage of sin. That is our enslavement. We are people that are broken and that desperately need his restoration because God saves those he sends. He wants to send you. He's here to save you, and he's already done so. He wants you to be able to notice the next step that's waiting for you. Will you take notice? Will you carve out some margin and time in your life to be able to allow him to give you the chance to be able to see, hey, God, uh, here, I, your name, and I want you to do this. I want you to go help this person. I want you to love them. So what adjustments need to be made in your spiritual life so that you can transform others? Do you need to change your pace? Carve out the time to be on retreat with the Lord. 
to spend a wilderness opportunity to really be in silence and solitude with him. Ask him to present himself to you in such a way that you will turn aside from whatever it is you're doing and that you will see him, that you will notice. Create a private space so that you'll posture yourself to be fully present and allow him to unearth and draw out those things in your life that need to be dealt with from his end. Expose yourself fully and be attentive to his spirit so that he can turn the page on your life story. Doesn't matter your background or what you believe, God is near. He knows you and desires to be with you anyway. He will make your paths clearly known if you allow him to form your life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this lesson of Exodus 3 and 4 that we can be reminded of what it is that you have called us to that there's so much brokenness in our lives, Lord, that you're always calling out to us in the wilderness that we can spend time with you and that we can be formed spiritually by you and that through that, through that with you, that you are with us and that you want to help use us and send us and continually saving us and others. God, may you continue to help each of us carve out time for you and that we can be with you so that you can use us to, to share your love with the world. And we ask this in your name we pray, amen.